Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. More reports of noises from the ocean in that desperate search for the missing sub. The lead starts right now. Sounds of hope in what is still being described as very much a search and rescue mission. Sensors picking up noises from the ocean. Could those noises be from the passengers trapped on that Titanic submersible that vanished during a deep sea expedition? And another U.S. Supreme Court justice defending another undisclosed luxury trip paid for by another billionaire. This time it's Justice Samuel Alito vacationing with a hedge fund billionaire who reportedly had business before the court, according to ProPublica. The preemptive strike Alito launched as he tried to get ahead of the claims and diplomacy undone. Was all that work by Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Beijing ruined when President Biden called Chinese leader Xi Jinping a dictator in an off-the-cuff fundraiser remark? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead. We need to have hope. That is the message from the U.S. Coast Guard today after officials announced more undersea noises have been detected by planes searching for the missing submersible. Planes that deployed special buoys with sonar. Officials say multiple reports of the noises are being analyzed and tracked, although they do not yet know what the sounds are. We should note, at this point, there could be less than a day's worth of air remaining in the sub. The search area is currently about twice the size of the state of Connecticut, and it's still expanding with more ships and aircraft joining the search as quickly as possible. Five people were on board the submersible when it went missing, including the subcompany's CEO, a French diver, a British explorer, and a Pakistani father and his son. CNN's Jason Carroll starts off our coverage today from Boston, the site of the U.S. Coast Guard Command Center, with new information about former employees who had raised safety concerns about that sub years ago. When you're in the middle of a search and rescue case, you always have hope. That's that's why we're doing what we do. With what could be less than 24 hours of oxygen left on board Titan, hope at this point may rest on banging noises detected by sonar. The Coast Guard revealing more noises were picked up this morning after a Canadian aircraft dropped a sonar buoy. With respect to the noises specifically, we don't know what they are. Uh, to be frank with you. Um, The the P3 detected noises. That's why they're up there. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they put sonar buoys in the water. The sounds described as banging, first picked up by a Canadian plane yesterday, according to a government memo, all the acoustic information sent to the U.S. Navy for analysis. Additional resources sent to search the area where the sounds were detected. The Coast Guard cautioned about drawing conclusions before experts can weigh in. We moved assets and we're searching there, and, um, and we'll continue to do so. Time is crucial. The rescue window continues to shrink. Experts still hoping those sounds are from those trapped on board, and the resources deployed can effort a rescue. It is encouraging that there there did seem to be a pattern to it. Uh, And, you know, we're going to continue to hold out hope. 
The vessel was headed to view the Titanic wreck that sits nearly 13,000 feet deep, but lost contact on Sunday, just one hour and 45 minutes into its descent. Five on board, including OceanGate's CEO and founder, Stockton Rush. I'd like to be remembered as an innovator. Um, I think it was General MacArthur said, you're remembered for the rules you break. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me. Now questions surrounding the safety of the vessel, which was not inspected and classed by an independent group that sets safety standards. Most chartered vessels are carefully inspected, reviewed, then classed. OceanGate argues the Titan is not, due to the technology being so new that it's not incorporated into existing standards. Two former employees of OceanGate separately brought up safety concerns about the vessel and the thickness of Titan's hull. There was additional testing since the time the employees left the company in 2017 and 2018, so it's unclear if their concerns were addressed. <clears throat> so the Coast Guard continuing to move assets into the search area, including more of those remotely operated vehicles, those are. ROVs, uh, which are equipped with cameras, which can search below their surface at deeper depths. The Coast Guard also saying, Jake, that they are remaining in close contact with family members. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll in Boston. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss former submarine captain David Marquet. Captain, how encouraged should we be by the news of these underwater sounds being recorded for the second day in a row? It, could it be anything other than uh, the survivors? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, it could be. Uh, it could be natural sounds, which just happened to temporarily fall into a pattern that sounded man-made and artificial. Uh, but the other thing that I worry about is now that more and more ships are coming into the area, now we're starting to hear more man-made sounds from the area. So, I mean, I could just imagine this happening. A crew member on one of the ships has a routine every Wednesday. He's supposed to change the oil filter. So he... They're down there changing the oil filter, banging on the thing. Now we just made man-made banging sounds that's picked up by those sonar buoys, triangulates back to an area in the vicinity of the Titanic, and then we send the ROV off to try and find it. Mm. I'm not saying that's what happened, right. but I, I, you know, in, in, the, in the world that we live, that's the kind of thing that can kind of come up. The, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard says the search area keeps expanding because of changing weather conditions. Uh, how much does that complicate the search? It must be tremendously. Yeah, so there's two search areas. When, when they say that, they're talking about the search area on, on the surface. It's going to keep expanding every hour, keeps getting bigger as the current shift. And we call it the area of uncertainty, the AOU. Now, if it's on the bottom, that search area is probably relatively confined, and we don't expect it to be rolling or moving along the bottom. It's probably pr pretty fixed near the site of the Titanic and the, the debris field for the Titanic is about a five mile long by three mile wide debris field. And so let's say they're about within a mile of that. I mean, that's more reasonable. It's about 35 square miles, but it's pitch black and we search it inch by inch by inch with these ROVs with lights to try and see what's down there. So it's a much slower process than flying an airplane. If rescuers are able to locate the sub on the floor of the ocean, uh, how will crews be able to get the sub back up to the surface? 
Yeah, so this is this is the good news. The Na- the US Navy has a system which is designed to do exactly this and it's and it's designed to be modularized and it's sitting in, on pallets and they've loaded it on airplanes. They've flown that system. It's a long cable, it's called FADOS, F-A-D-O-S-S. It's been flown out to Halifax. And as I understand, it's been placed on a ship and it will be out there early in the morning. So the ship that has this system is driving out there right now. It'll be out there early in the morning. Now that puts us desperately close because that's right about the time we expect them to run out of oxygen, but it's still possible. So if they're found, that system can hook them and it brings it up and it's designed for deeper and heavier things than what we have here. As someone who spent time in a vessel in the, in the depths of the sea, um, can you give us an idea of what it might be like for these explorers right now? Yeah, they are not comfortable. Uh, if, they're, they're, if they're alive, they're, they're happy. Uh, number one, they're freezing cold. The water entirely surrounding the ship is at freezing or slightly below. When they exhale, their breath condenses. There's frost on the inside of the parts of the submarine. They're all huddled together trying to conserve their body heat. They're running low on oxygen uh, and they're exhaling carbon dioxide. The the levels going up in the submarine has a limited ability to absorb that carbon dioxide. As that level goes up, we get headache, we feel nauseous, we start to get confused, we can't think right. Uh, And I'm sure they're thirsty and they're hungry, but that's probably not going to kill them. The oxygen and the carbon dioxide and the freezing are what they got to hold on to as long as possible give the rescuers the time they need. All right, David Marquet, thanks so much. In just a few minutes, I'm going to speak with a Titanic historian who knows one of the passengers and knows the area where the crews are searching. And just in, a plea in court for the 21-year-old Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified documents in the online chatroom Discord. Plus, the vibe shift on Capitol Hill as special counsel John Durham went from a closed-door meeting yesterday to a public hearing today with cameras and lots of members of Congress expressing outrage. Your reputation will be damaged, as everybody's reputation who gets involved with Donald Trump is damaged. He's damaged goods. My uh, concern about my reputation is with uh, the people who I respect, and my family, and my Lord. And I'm perfectly comfortable with my reputation with them, sir. Well said. God bless you. Um, The... um We are back with the world lead, the ongoing search for the missing Titanic submersible, which likely has less than a day's worth of air at this point. Let's bring in Titanic historian Bill Willard. He's very familiar with the search area and is also longtime friends with Paul-Henri Nargiole, one of the five people on the missing submersible. So, Bill, the search is focusing on an area where underwater noises were heard. Does that give you hope? Definitely, if if those noises are from the Titan, uh, they can triangulate and locate the the submersible much quicker. You've known Paul Henri for 20 years. How prepared would he be to to handle this this kind of crisis? PH is a consummate um, professional. Um, He has the greatest teacher that one can have as experience. Um, He has experience in underwater vehicles. He has experience in scuba. He has experience leading expeditions. If anybody could troubleshoot and come up with a plan, it would be PH. 
of plan might he be making? What sort of steps would he and the other passengers be taking? Well, just like your previous guest said, uh, they are in there uh, trying to prolong and uh, extend time. They're probably getting close together to save warmth. It's going to be pitch black unless someone brought a a flashlight or two down. Uh, They're going to make noise to try to say, how will they know where to find us? And this is the best way. Um, I'm sure PH tried everything that was possible with the sub in order to try to re-engineer the power and get the power back on. So uh, he would be a man in there to exhaust those opportunities. In addition to uh, pitch black conditions, um, what other conditions would the passengers be facing down there? The previous guest said it would be uh, freezing temperatures, if not below freezing. Absolutely. Um, very cold. Um, those would be the two that would probably um, affect me the most, the cold and the dark. Now, eventually they're going to run into a um, CO2 buildup, and that's going to be a, a problem coming up soon. But the, the first two is the cold and the darkness. Is there a way to conserve oxygen? Sleeping, you, you breathe less when you rest. Um, so that would be one way to slow down. Uh, you can't stay awake for three days, so they would have had to have rested and slept somehow. So that would have helped them to a degree. Um, the more excited you get, the more you tend to hyperventilate, you breathe faster. So remaining calm is is one thing. And uh, PH would try to tell them that. you got to remain calm. Everybody's coming for us. We're going to make some noise. Let them know we're here, and they're going to come for us. So today's Wednesday. This crew set off Sunday to see the Titanic wreckage. It's more than 13,000 feet underwater. Uh, how dangerous is a voyage like this? Uh, and is it more dangerous in a vessel like this one? Uh, the pressure down there is 6,200 PSI approximately, depending on the exact depth of the water. Uh, compare that to your car tire, which is about 47 to 50 pounds per square inch. So 6,200 PSI is immensely crushing. Um, so, yes, it is, it is an extreme uh, visit when you go down to the wreck. Um, one person interviewed on one news source said something about these are not tourist dives. Well, in a way they are because several of the passengers are not scientists. They're not researchers. They are paying to go and see the wreck and they take a chance when they do that. Even on our expeditions in 96 and 98, they said that this is not a, a joy ride. This is something that's very serious and it's it's real world. Something could go wrong. So even in 98, with some of the best equipment that they had out there, uh, there was the potential that something might happen. Bill, or- Bill Willard, thank you so much for your time. We'll be uh, praying for your friend PH and, and his other passengers. Thank you. We're also, the whole Titanic community is, is pulling for this rescue team, and um, we hope that there's good news later today for, from, from them. Yeah, amen. The Chinese government called it absurd and irresponsible that President Biden would refer to its leader Xi Jinping as a dictator. Well, now the Biden administration has its own response. Could the back and forth undo all the diplomatic progress made by the Secretary of State just last weekend?
Topping our law and justice lead, moments ago, the 21-year-old National Guard airman accused of leaking troves of classified U.S. intelligence documents online just pleaded not guilty. Jack Tashira allegedly spilled damaging state secrets on the social media site Discord, seemingly to impress his online buddies. Let's get right to CNN's Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon. Orrin, remind us what charges he is facing and how long he might have to serve behind bars. Jake, 21-year-old Jack Tashira indicted on six counts of willful retention and transmission of classified information related to the national defense. The hearing today started right about on time at 3.45 p.m. Wasn't all that long. Lasted less than 15 minutes by my watch, about 13 or 14 minutes here. 21-year-old Tashira, a member of the uh, Massachusetts Air National Guard, was wearing an orange jumpsuit and rosary beads as this hearing moved on here. The judge made sure he understood the charges against him, and Tashira entered a not guilty plea on all six counts. Again, the charge of willful retention and transmission of classified information related to the national defense. Shortly after the hearing ended, so just before 4 p.m., Tashira's family spokesperson entered, or rather put out a statement saying, We remain as committed as ever, and our entire family continues to share complete and unwavering support of Jack as he faces this matter. The important thing is Jack will now have his day in court, and as we move through this process, we are hopeful that Jack will be getting the fair and just treatment he deserves. We realize there's a long road ahead, and we ask for your continued respect for our privacy during this difficult ordeal. Each of these six counts uh, carries with it a potential sentence of up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to a quarter of a million dollars. So that's the penalty that Tejera faces should he be found guilty. In terms of where the legal proceedings move from here, it goes into the discovery phase. There'll be a procedural check-in in early August. Uh, Jake, just one more point here. Tejera's lawyers asked the judge to reconsider his detention as he awaits trial. That was denied by the judge. Hmm. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Turning to our world lead, don't you hate it when your boss scraps all your hard work? Well, President Biden may have just done that to his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, in unscripted remarks at a fundraiser last night in California. President Biden essentially called China's leader Xi Jinping a dictator. Now Chinese government officials are seething, one calling it, quote, extremely absurd and irresponsible. The comment risks unraveling any progress Blinken made on his belated trip to China earlier this week, where the two countries agreed on the need to stabilize ties. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is at the White House for us. Jeremy, what exactly did Biden say and how is the cleanup going? Well, Jake, President Biden has long been known for making some of his most freewheeling off-script comments at these types of fundraisers. But this time, it comes at a very delicate moment in the U.S.-China relationship. At a fundraiser in California last night, President Biden not only calling the Chinese president uh, a dictator, but also, perhaps more importantly, actually, he also really undermined uh, the way in which Xi Jinping projects his strength, making him look weak by unveiling U.S. intelligence that uh, indicates that she was not aware of that Chinese spy balloon drifting over the United States. Uh, Here's what the president said last night, quote, the reason why Xi Jinping got very upset in terms of when I shot that balloon down with two boxcars full of spy equipment in it is he didn't know it was there. No, I'm serious. That's what what's a great embarrassment for dictators. 
when they didn't know what happened. And now look, we're told that the president's assessment of she uh, being in the dark on this actually reflects U.S. intelligence that's been previously uh, reported months ago. But the president of the United States saying this directly, of course, is a whole other matter, especially after uh, Secretary of State Blinken just uh, returned from a, a very important and sensitive trip to Beijing that's been in the works for months. Now, I did speak with a senior administration official who told me that, quote, it should come as no surprise that the president speaks candidly about China and the differences that we have. We are certainly not alone in that. That official, Jake, also told me that they don't believe this is going to undermine the progress that Secretary Blinken made. But of course, that visit has been in the works for so long. So much effort went into it and relations appear to be thawing. We will see whether or not the president's undermine, uh, president's comments undermine any of that progress going forward. And Jeremy, there's, there's a different world leader in town. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he is set to arrive at the White House tonight. A full state visit is in order tomorrow, including a state dinner. We're also expecting an opportunity to ask the two leaders questions at a news conference tomorrow. This is obviously a controversial visit in some respects because Modi, uh, his policies and, and the way he has conducted politics in his country, very much viewed as Islamophobic in some uh, regards. Uh, and, and But of course, the U.S. is essentially making the uh, notion that, look, despite humanitarian concerns, human rights concerns, India is central to the U.S.'s strategy in the region, including encountering China. Jake. Mm. All right, CNN's Jeremy Diamond at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Now on to Ukraine. Today, more than 400 global companies pledged to rebuild the war-torn country. President Volodymyr Zelensky also secured an additional $1.3 billion from the United States for Ukraine's ailing energy grid. While back on the battlefield, Russian President Vladimir Putin insisted today that Ukraine is losing it's counteroffensive as Ukraine releases video of its artillery units blowing up Russian positions south of Zaporizhia. CNN's Fred Pleitkin got some exclusive access to Ukraine's Navy as defense in the water becomes just as important as it is on land and in the air. Night after night, a common theme. Russian aerial attacks on Ukraine cities, air defense viciously fighting back, from land, the air, and from the water. We got exclusive access to Ukrainian Navy patrol boats that are part of that fight. The Ukrainians say the Russians often fly drones and even cruise missiles along rivers to avoid air defenses. That's why boats like this one play an important role keeping both cities, but also critical infrastructure, safe. The commander, who only gave his name as Anton, says air defense is a key component of their mission. Are you effective? So I cannot answer that question, how affected we are, but so are we affected? I will say yes. As Ukraine presses on with its counteroffensive, Kiev acknowledges the Russians are putting up stiff resistance, every yard of territory hard fought. We would certainly like to make bigger steps, the Ukrainian president says. They are smaller than we want, but nevertheless, those who fight shall win. Moscow claiming they are repelling Ukraine's attempted advances. Russian President Vladimir Putin saying his troops are wearing the Ukrainians down. Currently, we're seeing a certain lull. It has to do with the fact that the enemy is suffering serious losses. The Ukrainians fear the Russians might try to infiltrate and destabilize cities like Kiev or smuggle weapons here. So the Navy crew searches all boats and barges on the river. In this search, it was an all-clear. They will make a search of the uh, suspected vessel. In the meantime, 
we will be surrounding them to make sure that nobody is going to leave the vessel, that they will not be under attack. Their work, they say, even more pressing after the recent destruction of the Novokarkovka Dam, which the Russians and Ukrainians blame on each other. The river is also a strategic object, especially now, as you can see what happened in uh, Kahovka. So now you can understand how it is important to make it safe and secure place. So as you can see, Derek, you're absolutely right. Another important front here in the war in Ukraine, where the Ukrainians definitely have to watch out what happens here uh, in uh, the uh, capital region of Kiev, of course, in other areas as well. And, you know, Vladimir Putin was there saying that he believed that the Ukrainian offensive is in a certain lull. But the Ukrainians today saying that they did hit the Russians extremely hard, managed to clear some positions, especially in the southeast of the country. And the soldiers that we've been speaking to over the past couple of days certainly still very confident that the counteroffensive can succeed, Jake. All right, Fred Plytkin and Kiev, thank you so much. Coming up, the contentious questions for special counsel John Durham about his report that found that the FBI went too far in launching a full-blown investigation into Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and any ties to Russia. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead special counsel John Durham attempted to defend himself and his investigation on Capitol Hill today as House Democrats launched fierce criticism and Republicans continued their complaints about the Trump-Russia investigation. Special Counsel Durham testified about his findings that the FBI should have only launched a preliminary, not a full investigation into exploring any possible connections between Trump's presidential campaign and the Russian government during the 2016 election. CNN Sarah Murray is on Capitol Hill for us. And Sarah, This seemed, from my vantage point, an incredibly partisan and confrontational few hours in the hearing room. It was, perhaps unsurprisingly, because the cameras cameras were rolling, Jake, it was pretty partisan. And John Durham, you know, he tried to stick within his report. You know, he said that he felt like his findings were very sobering. He felt like the FBI failed to take steps to interview certain witnesses, failed to bring forth certain exculpatory evidence. Here is what he had to say as the many hours of hearing were winding down today, Jake. I don't think that um, things can go... uh, much further with a view that law enforcement, particularly the FBI, the Department of Justice, runs a two-tiered system of justice. Um, the nation can't stand under, uh, under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, Durham stood by his report. He stood by his criticism of the FBI and their actions in opening this full-blown investigation. Obviously, this was welcome news to the Republicans on the panel, while Democrats were fiercely critical of Durham, saying that he failed to properly look into the possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russians, and also pointing out that he got one minor conviction and two pretty embarrassing acquittals when it came to court. Take a listen to what the top Republican and top Democrat on the committee had to say today. After two and a half years of the Mueller investigation, 19 lawyers, 40 agents, $30 million, where they found nothing, maybe, maybe we should figure out how the whole lie started. That's exactly what Mr. Durham has done. Mr. Durham constructed a flimsy story built on shaky inferences and dog whistles to far-right conspiracy theorists. 
Now, Jake, we should also note that despite what Jim Jordan is saying there, John Durham said that he was not there to refute the actual findings of the Mueller report, but he obviously had very serious concerns about the way that this investigation got underway. And if you think this is the end of it, think again. I spoke to Jim Jordan as the hearing was winding down today. He said he still has a lot of questions about the FBI's conduct, and his committee intends to continue to explore that, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray on the Hill for us. Thank you so much. And our law and justice lead, New York prosecutors, have subpoenaed the attorneys for E. Jean Carroll. They're asking for Trump's videotaped deposition that was taken as part of Carroll's defamation suit in civil court against Trump. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office making this request as part of its criminal case involving Trump's hush money payment to adult film star and director Stormy Daniels. Trump has been, of course, charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in that New York case. CNN chief legal analyst Laura Coates is with us to discuss a lot of this. So, uh, Laura, New York prosecutors say they want access to the the taped deposition for several reasons. They acknowledge one of them includes his response when Mr. Trump was asked about the Hollywood, uh, Access Hollywood tape. Here's a little clip from his response on that. Take a listen. It's true with stars that they can grab women by the... Well, that's what, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately, it's locker room talk. And so does that mean that you didn't really mean it? No, it's locker room talk. I don't know. It's just the way people talk. So why would they want that excerpt, the Manhattan Criminal Court? This, well, this seems so unlikely to many people as to why one has to do with the other. But remember, that Hollywood access tape came out around the time of, of course, the 2016 election. And many people in his campaign believe that it would have an impact, a negative impact. And behind the scenes, it's been alleged that there were conversations about what the impact might be, how to get ahead of it, how to undermine it in some significant way. And so the subject matter of that entire discussion in that previous time of his candidacy relate to the core factual predicate of what we know to be the Manhattan DA's office um, indictments relating to the hush money payments, which also had to do with the same time frame and alluded to the same similar conduct that really was um, going to be discussed overall. Now, it's not the precision of the analogy, but remember, we've only heard an excerpt so far from that E. Jean Carroll lawsuit and that deposition. There are apparently dozens of more pages to actually have, and they want that to be part of the new investigation and continuing investigation. So, Laura, New York prosecutors have also issued new subpoenas to the Trump Organization, uh, demanding emails involving Trump Organization officials and the White House personnel. What's that about? Interestingly, my thought on this is that they're related to what other communications might have been had in an effort to either deal with the transition period, to try to deal with what might come out after he was already elected and beyond, things that might be contemporaneous with the actual investigation as well, or things that might be more retrospective and confirming and buttressing the testimony of others who might say, look, this is what happened. Here's the complete picture. You know, you can't look at any of this as a prosecutor in a vacuum. You've got to have a very comprehensive approach to know either one, what you have that could be inculpatory or what might also be exculpatory in some frame or fashion. And you have to actually have the wherewithal to go and get information that you might not have access to initially that could actually relate to what you're prosecuting. Because you do not want this to happen at trial when all of a sudden you put on your case, Jake, 
And the next thing you know, the defense team says, well, what about this? What don't you know? What they're not telling you is X, Y, Z. Remember, the burden rests with the prosecution. So the net has to be extremely wide to cast in order to anticipate those defense and anticipate what your requirements are for discovery. All right, Laura Coates, thanks so much. Appreciate it. He went all the way to South Korea to become a she, and the change still does not sit well with her father, who is a preacher. Coming up next, the struggle so many families experience uh, with transgender children. Stay with us. In our health lead, a federal judge has struck down Arkansas's ban on certain health procedures for trans minors, such as puberty blockers or hormone therapy. The ruling is the strongest blow yet to a state's attempt to block these kinds of procedures for transgender youth, with the judge writing in the decision a series of facts and findings from research stating, quote, gender identity is not something that an individual can control or voluntarily change, and, quote, efforts to change a person's gender identity to become congruent with their birth-assigned sex have been attempted in the past, without success and with harmful effects, and that, quote, decades of clinical experience have shown that adolescents with gender dysphoria experience significant positive benefits to their health and well-being from gender-affirming medical care, unquote. But even without government intervention or intrusion, these decisions and experiences and the fallout can be difficult enough on a personal basis within one's family, as CNN's Adrian Broadus reports from Indiana. This was when I first made Sephora Squad. And that's when Kaya Johnson identified as a gay man. When I was a little boy, people would always call me gay. And I didn't even know what that was. This is Kaya back then. Hezekiah. Hezekiah back then. And then now, Kaya. That's Kaya in South Korea. This is making me so emotional. Preparing for gender-affirming treatment. This was really hard for us as parents because uh, Kaya was our only son. Gina and Ante Johnson raised three children. I was so afraid of what people was going to say about us as parents. Us being my husband, a minister. I wouldn't choose to be trans. If I had a choice, I would not choose it because of all the hell that I've gone through. Being a preacher's kid, I was taught that, you know, homosexuality is a bad thing. This hasn't been uh, an easy transition as a father. You know, there's a difference between agreement and acceptance. And for me, nope, I don't agree. Ante went live on social media after finding out Kaya is transgender. People were wanting me um, as a father to pivot with, you know, the pronouns and all that. And it's like, whoa, whoa, yeah. you know, I'm 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 just learning this. No. I just I just heard this. Yeah, so Kaya, you have to give your time your dad time because that's a hard pill to swallow. I'm human. Um ooh. Forget the trans. I'm just a human that just wants to live their life. I was extremely suicidal. I was scared. And for me, that's just not, that's a non-negotiable. I'm not going to lose my child. But here's the, the power 
of transformation. The Lord spoke very audibly to me. Until uh, you got to let love lead. How would Jesus, how would he handle this? What would he do? And so that's really challenged my theology and um, my perspective. I'm, I'm still growing. I'm still learning. Growth is a journey. During the time in Korea, I went through a whole grieving process for that whole month. And I said to myself, I said, you know, you have to let your children live. And you have to let your children um, do what they want to do. She's happy. Do you think you ever will call Kaya she or her or say my daughter? I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with. Another struggle? Bills targeting the LGBTQ plus community. Nearly 500 across the country introduced this legislative session, according to the ACLU, including a record number in Indiana, where Kaya's parents live. It's foolishness. So is justice just for some people and not for everybody? All I want for my, my parents, my dad, my mom, is their love. My baby has taught me to really, really reevaluate uh, and reimagine love and what love is. Your love is so sweet, it knocks me right off from my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Kaya's voice is beautiful. During our conversation, Kaya told me she stopped singing for a bit because people would tell her. Her voice didn't match how she looked. Meanwhile, the Johnsons said they chose to talk to me because they wanted to encourage other black and brown families specifically who may be having similar challenges. And it's rare to see honest and hard conversations like the Johnsons are having in other households, Jake. And it's so interesting that it was really just about saving her life, that she was suicidal and that was the deal breaker uh, for the father there. He, he, he wanted to keep his child alive. Where are the parents now on their journey? It's still a growth for Ante. After our conversation, he shared with me, I didn't realize until you asked that question that I don't refer to Kaya as my daughter. And as he mentioned in the story, it's unclear if that day will ever come. So they're learning and their shirts say it all. Let love lead. Interesting. Adrian Broaddus, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The search area is expanding for the missing sub as the five people on board only have hours of oxygen left. We're going to talk to one man who was supposed to be on the missing vessel, why he says he canceled at the last minute. That's at the top of the hour. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new information about the DNA collected from the murder weapon used in that brutal slaying of the four Idaho college students. Plus, more questions today about Supreme Court justices not disclosing luxury vacations with billionaires, this time involving a private jet, a king salmon fishing trip, and a man with business before the Supreme Court. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito comes out swinging against the new ProPublica report about one time he went to Alaska. And leading this hour, the U.S. Coast Guard just gave an update on the search for the missing sub with five people on board that is quickly running out of oxygen. Officials confirmed underwater noises were detected this morning by a specialized Canadian aircraft, but officials still do not know what the noises are. Banging noises were first picked up yesterday, occurring in 30-minute intervals. Search teams 
also announcing today that the search area has grown much larger on the surface, now twice the size of the state of Connecticut, but they emphasized this remains a search and rescue mission. CNN's Miguel Marquez begins our coverage from Newfoundland, where rescuers are holding on to hope as they work tirelessly to try to find this lost submersible before it's too late. This is a search and rescue mission, 100%. Rescuers clinging to every sliver of hope. Indistinct sounds from the ocean depths could be a sign, the sign of life. The noises were heard by a Canadian P3, and that was this morning and some yesterday. The noise described as banging sounds at regular intervals in the Department of Homeland Security briefing are now described as less specific than that, but still the focus of the search. We need to have hope, right? But, but I, don't, I can't tell you what the noises are. But what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are. And that's all we can do at this point. The sounds picked up by buoys like this one dropped from planes, then listening for any signs of life from the Titan submersible. This team has multiple sensors. They're in the area. They're sending data back expeditiously to the best in the world. It takes about a day for ships from St. John's, the closest land to the Titanic wreck site, to arrive at the search area. That search area, enormous, two times the size of Connecticut. A grid pattern provided by the U.S. Coast Guard indicates the meticulous nature of the search and how it's expanded. The commercial ship Horizon Arctic left this morning with equipment and gear from three U.S. military C-17 cargo planes. And another Canadian Coast Guard ship, the Terry Fox, left St. John's today and is on the way. They will join eight other ships, either already at the search area or en route. The submersible, made of carbon fiber and titanium, no hatch. Its five-person crew bolted in to the 21-foot craft, stirred controversy during its development and testing. In 2018, the Marine Technology Society, a volunteer group that offers technical advice to the industry, expressed concerns to OceanGate about, quote, the current experimental approach adopted by OceanGate could result in negative outcomes, from minor to catastrophic, that would have serious consequences for everyone in the industry, unquote. The industry group wanted OceanGate to submit to comprehensive testing and certification standards. It's not clear what steps OceanGate undertook to test and adhere to those standards. Now, I spoke to one person earlier today from here in St. John's who did that dive a year ago with his son as well and says that he expressed great confidence in both the safety training that they went through to, to get on that submersible and felt very confident in Ocean Gate's uh, capabilities. I can tell you from the ground here in St. John's, there is still great hope, even though time is drawing short, that they will identify where that craft is get down there and be able to bring it up and have a, a, a somewhat happy ending to this. But you know, people are just shocked by what they, the, if they are alive down there, what they are experiencing. Jake. All right. Miguel Marquez in Newfoundland. Thank you so much. OceanGate has touted the safety features of the now missing submersible called the Titan. But not only is there conflicting information about how it was made, there have been previous warnings about this vessel and how it could lead to catastrophic problems on a Titanic expedition. Joining us now to discuss CNN's Gabe Cohen. Gabe, tell us more about this warning sign that came up in 2018. Well, you heard Miguel talk about it for a moment there. There was this 2018 letter that was written by the head of the submarine committee at the uh, Marine Technology Society. And it was co-signed by three dozen specialists across the submersible industry, according to a New York Times report. 
And the big concern was that they had felt uh, Titan, the vessel, could experience a, a catastrophic consequence because of the experimental way uh, that OceanGate had gone about designing it and implementing it. The big concern uh, was that the company wasn't following the same safety standards as other vessels because uh, they hadn't tested it in front of ind- independent industry specialists and it hadn't been certified by an industry group. In fact, the author of that letter, Will Conan, told me today in an interview, he actually voiced those concerns directly to OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush, uh, who's now missing. He's one of the five people missing on that vessel. And he said the two of them really just agreed to disagree. But we do know that OceanGate in a 2019 blog post actually uh, defended their decision to not class this vessel, saying that, look, it could take years, Jake. It could uh, stifle innovation. And in the end, uh, the safety benefits really didn't outweigh what it could cost them from an innovation standpoint. Mm-hmm. Is the is the Titan this missing submersible? Is it subject to any regulations by any government? The short answer from the experts we've spoken with is no. It's basically the Wild West on these dives when you go out in international waters. And that's why this 2018 letter was so uh, direct and so urgent, because the author felt like they were really just breaking industry standards that all other submersible companies were following. In fact, that author, Will Conan, told me there were only 10 submarines in the world that can make that dive 12,000 feet. Uh, the Titan, it's the only one that's not certified. Uh-huh. That's unsettling. Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Joining us now, someone who had signed up to go on the Titanic submersible uh, on this journey, but canceled over safety concerns. This is Chris Brown. He's a modern explorer. He's founder of inaccessibility.net. Chris, what concerns did you have? What made you cancel your participation on this expedition? Um, And how does it feel knowing that you could have been part of this trip? Um. When you go on any expedition, you, you look at the risks involved and you try and mitigate them in different ways, uh, using different equipment, bringing in experts, or something simple as, as changing the, the date that you may do the expedition. This one, there seemed to be a lot of risks that were outside of my control, um, and I didn't like the way that they were being approached by the company. They they had set some depth targets um, they were going to, to send to everybody and hit those targets on set dates. They continuously missed them. Um, by I'd signed up in 2017. Uh, by the end of 2018, I must say I, I was unaware of the letter you've just discussed, um, they still hadn't reached a depth of 300 metres, um, bearing in mind that the wreck is at 3,800. Um, then I was looking at parts of the vessels. There was some um, like industrial casing was being used as ballast. Um, they got like an Xbox controller for, for steering it. Um, there's the other parts seemed off the shelf. And it, it just seemed like, you know, if, if you wanted to try and figure a way of getting across a river, let's strap a bit on here. Oh, let's do that. Um, it didn't come across as a, a professional uh, diving operation to me. Um, so I, I took the decision to uh, withdraw my deposit and, and to get off the program at that stage. When was that? That was at the end of 2018, December 2018. And how does it feel looking um, at what's going on now, knowing that you could have been on this vessel? I, I, I take no pleasure from that. The, the situation's horrendous. I think um, 
How and why is a question for the future. Right now, we need to focus on trying to rescue these five humans that are trapped beneath the sea. Um, and we, we've got to think about their families and their, their friends, their close friends. Uh, they must be suffering dreadfully. 100%. Now, you, you've also met one of those on board the missing um, submersible, Hamish Harding. Tell us what you know about Hamish. Hamish, uh, yes, met him on a trip to the South Pole in 2016, um, did some climbing with him. Um, he's a very grounded, uh, very calm individual, uh, fiercely intellectual. He'll be probably leading the, the, the way in the sub, keeping everybody calm. Um, you know, he's, he's done many expeditions, uh, been under stress before, so he'll be a, a big calming influence. I expect that he's, he's probably constantly, constantly thinking of, of ways of um, solving whatever situation they're in. We, you know, we don't know if they're snagged. We don't know if they just dropped to the bottom. We don't know what the problem is with the sub. Um, e- even if it's come to the surface and not in communication with the mothership, that's still an issue because it can only be opened from the outside. Um, so it, it's, it, there's still the oxygen issue. The U.S. Coast Guard says it's it's uh, urgently looking into reports of noises from the ocean, from these uh, sonar buoys that a Canadian aircraft is is putting in the water, and and the sound goes back to the to the plane. Uh, what do you what do you make of those efforts? Well, they're they're encouraging. Um, the initial reports said that they were occurring every thirty minutes. That that um, is an indication of human activity. Uh, it, it's not random. So. If he, if somebody like uh, Hamish was coming up with a plan, you try you're trying to preserve oxygen, so moving around, making a noise all the time, um, isn't a good idea for for burning oxygen. But also, it's it's just like a random noise. How are they going to pick it up? But by making a noise at a set frequency, that's an indication of uh, intelligent life uh, below the ocean. You mentioned so that that gives a. That gives encouragement that they may still be alive. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. You you mentioned that you put in a deposit yes. for the trip. Um, was OceanGate charging two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per passenger for for that particular voyage? Because that's that's the price we had. We, we heard uh, right, for this right, one. Right at the beginning. Right at the beginning, it was more like one hundred and ten, I believe. All right, Chris Brown. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time today. Why our next guest objected? To the deep-sea tourism of the Titanic, the head of the Smithsonian Diving Program will join me live on the latest on the search for the missing submarine. Then, dozens of people are injured when an explosion rips through a Paris apartment building. What we know about the cause and the severity of the injuries. Stay with us. And we're back now with more in our world lead, a massive search and rescue operation underway for the missing Titanic submersible that could be at the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. Joining us now, Paul Johnston. He's a member of the Smithsonian Scientific Diving Control Board, which oversees all of the Smithsonian diving expeditions worldwide. Paul, before OceanGate's Titan submersible went missing, you said you did not object to the company's Titanic expeditions because they're not touching or damaging the wreck. Um, what is your general view of this type of deep sea tourism? Well, I think that uh, frontier or risk tourism is a pretty dangerous business. And unfortunately, we're learning that today. This is a, a very sad and a scary story for the summer solstice. But I, I think that 
that the problem is the commercial exploitation of a shipwreck like this. I mean, this is a graveyard. And if you want to go see a graveyard, why not go to Arlington National Cemetery instead of uh, all the way down to Titanic? I, I think in a lot of cases, it's sort of a, a bucket list uh, checkbox, really, just to say you've done that and you've done something that nobody else has. But I think if you don't touch the wreck, there's probably nothing wrong with that. But but really, it's uh, it's kind of pointless. Now, that said, Titanic has iconic value. It is It is the most famous and most enduring shipwreck in history. And so it breaks all the rules. You've also previously said that there isn't really much else to learn about the Titanic that experts don't already know. But people are willing to pay $250,000 each to take part in Ocean Gate's eight-day Titanic expedition. Why do you think there's such an interest? I mean, you you noted that the Titanic is such an iconic disaster, but, but why do you think? Why is Titanic an iconic disaster? That's a question I've never been able to answer in decades of being a maritime historian and an underwater archaeologist. It's, um, I think it has to do with the fame of the people. It has to do with the media attention that it got. In fact, uh, one myth that grew up around Titanic was that the ship was unsinkable, and that was something that was never said before the ship actually sank. That was a media construct after it sank. It's interesting. I, it, it does seem a monument to, to man's hubris, in a way. Um, CNN has learned of at least two former OceanGate employees who had raised concern in the past about the Titan submersible's um, safety features. Um, and as my colleague Cabe Cohen has previously noted, um, there's no GPS on board. What looks like a game controller is used to move the vessel. Uh, this vessel, uh, as opposed to any other one that could go that deep appeared to be governed by no government. Um, what do you make uh, of this vessel, what appears to be less sophisticated parts used in it, uh, the Wild West nature of it all, taking individuals down to these very dangerous ocean depths? Well, the CEO in, in an interview I saw from about a year ago was taking pride in the low-tech approach that OceanGate is taking to this with the with the game controller, and unfortunately, it, it seems to have caught up with them. Uh, this is not the first time that communications have been lost an hour or two into a dive on Titanic. And I heard, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard or read uh, that that this was the fifth expedition uh, this year on Titanic, and that's scary too because. This kind of technology needs constant maintenance and up, updating and upgrading of the elements. And unfortunately, we just don't know what's happened. And um, while I'm not the person to call it, I can't help wondering, um, even if the FADOS system gets out there in time, this is a, a U.S. Navy system that's able to actually uh, grapple the ship and bring it up. Even if it gets there, it's going to take several hours to... to uh, to set it up and to bolt it to the deck of the mothership that's going to, to deploy it and then calibrate all the instruments that have to be set. It's just, it's not a terribly likely scenario, and I feel very sorry for the, for the people who do this. And the same thing for people who go into space or go to the International Space Station. This yeah. is very risky frontier tourism, and all we can do is hope this is not the final frontier for the people on board the Titan. Indeed. Paul Johnston, thank you so much. Turning to France now, nearly 40 people 
are reported hurt after a massive gas explosion in the heart of Paris. Four people critically injured, two still missing, according to Paris police. The explosion happened just before 5 p.m. Paris time. A local official tells CNN he believes the explosion came from the Paris American Academy, which is a bilingual fashion and design school. Hundreds of firefighters responded to the scene initially, and now rescue workers are frantically searching through the rubble this afternoon. France's interior minister spoke with reporters at the site of the explosion, saying, quote, it's possible that we will find dead bodies tonight or we will find them alive, unquote. Coming up, the growing questions about Supreme Court justices and their billionaire friends. The new report about Justice Samuel Alito and a seat on a private jet to a luxury Alaska fishing trip. That's next. An explosive new report today from ProPublica showing that a U.S. Supreme Court justice accepted a luxury vacation in 2008 from a billionaire Republican megadonor who would go on to have cases pending before the high court for which the justice did not recuse himself. And no, we're not talking about Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow. This time it's Justice Samuel Alito who flew with hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer to Alaska on a private jet, the cost of which could have exceeded $100,000. From the article, quote, Alito did not report the 2008 fishing trip on his annual financial disclosures. By failing to disclose the private jet flight Singer provided, Alito appears to have violated a federal law that requires justices to disclose most gifts, according to ethics law experts. Justice Alito tried to get ahead of the story by submitting and having published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, where he wrote in part, quote, it was and is my judgment that these facts would not cause a reasonable and unbiased person to doubt my ability to decide the matters in question impartially, unquote. Um, let's discuss. Um, so, Nia, before the article even came out, Alito, you know, gave this op-ed to his friends at the Journal, right. disputing some of the charges and, and his need to recuse himself in writing. Quote, it was and is my judgment these facts would not cause a reasonable and unbiased person to doubt my ability to decide the matters in question impartially. He also claims he had no idea that Singer had any business before the court, although I think if you Googled yeah. some of the matters, uh, his name would have popped up. What do you make of all this? Well, listen, I think this on top of the story around uh, Clarence Thomas accepting luxury uh, gifts and, and luxury trips is going to make it impossible for the Supreme Court to exist as it exists now, uh, which is sort of above, above uh, ethics rules. If you look at a lot of the data on the Supreme Court, it had been seen as sort of an above board, uh, apolitical institution. Over the last two or three years, that has declined. I think their approval rating has declined something like 20 points uh, in the last couple of years. It's because of some of the things they've done uh, in terms of decisions they've made. But this doesn't help. You've got moves, I think, that are going to happen on Congress at some point uh, to put some laws in place uh, to make this uh, not happen again because there is the appearance of impropriety. There's also just a lack of judgment, right? I mean, here you are on the highest court in the land and you can't think that this is a sort of improper thing to do, even a sort of by appearances. It's not to say that he did anything wrong or even necessarily unethical, but the appearance of it, it would seem to me that somebody in that position uh, would know and have the judgment to not do this, to either recuse himself from these cases, to know that Paul Singer is coming before him, or certainly to list some of this stuff uh, on the documents that you have to put forward. One of the things that I find so odd about this is it seems like there's this very political reaction, this very political response, as opposed to, 
you know, looking back on it now, I should have mm-hmm. disclosed it. And, I, you know, it didn't affect any decision I made, but I realize I'm on the highest court of the land and there's a special obligation and I'll, I'll do better in the future, which as opposed to this very fiery, feisty, defensive response. Right. I mean, taking um, answers to questions from a news outlet and dumping it to a competitor, <laughs> frankly, to a competitor outlet is something that does happen in politics and perhaps not in the coverage of the Supreme Court. But Nia Malika is just so right, just this declined public trust in the institution. And it's not just, I mean, it's def- certainly definitely the last couple of years with, with these activities, and it's certainly the last couple of months with the activities of Clarence Thomas and with uh, uh, Sam Alito, but also these nasty confirmation fights that have also kind of helped, uh, I, I believe, contribute to the decline of public trust in the Supreme Court and also just the rulings that, that have really upended, you know, public life, I think really has led to that as well. Yeah, can, and I want to jump in on that. Like the, the polling came out today, like, I believe NPR, it's like nearly 60 percent of Americans do not have faith or little to no faith in the Supreme Court. And look, I actually spent time on the road these past few months talking to voters with a coalition of organizations like Planned Parenthood, Color of Change, National Action Network with Demand Justice. And, and we were talking to voters and several states who want ethics reform. They want to even expand the Supreme Court. And it's to your point about these leaks that are coming out, as well as how some of these decisions are coming out that are taking away the fundamental human rights for majority of Americans, but benefiting the wealthy the wealthy elite class who are the ones that these justices are actually spending a lot of time in. And so the other thing I would say about all of this is that it's kind of comical in the response to these questions about the ethics. Listen, I'm a communications professional. I spent a lot of time working for presidential (laughs) campaigns or Planned Parenthood. This is actually not the best way to handle a crisis communications issue. And it's actually beyond a communications issue. But as a communication strategist, I actually think they are doubling down on the problem versus actually doing anything. To I, I won't disagree with that part. As a communications professional, what you don't want to do is something known as the Streisand effect, mm-hmm. which is something that might not have gotten a lot of attention. You take action that actually draws a lot more attention to the story. We probably would have been talking about this in the absence of the Wall Street sure. Journal op-ed, but we might not have been talking about it as long or it might right. not have had as, as much in terms of legs. And so I am not sure that I would have advised Justice Alito <laughs> to write this piece. But your question about, well, then why did he? Why would you take an action that's so political? Mm -hmm. And the reality is that the way people are thinking about the legitimacy of the court these days is extremely political. You have a ruling like Dobbs that comes down, and the political left says this court is illegitimate. And then you have a ruling come down like two weeks ago, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, that gives uh, effectively sort of reorients how Alabama or other states in the South will carve up their their, uh, seats in the House. It will benefit Democrats politically by redrawing those lines, suddenly now the court is legitimate and it's Republicans who are saying, oh, what's going on here? And so the reality is that, yes, we do need high standards for ethics on the courts, but the way most people are making judgments about, do I like the Supreme Court or not, is much more about, do I like the rulings that they are Sure. No, absolutely. Um, But I guess one of the questions I have is, so look, let's let's just, first of all, we have no idea what else is out there, right? We've only learned about Thomas mm-hmm. and Crow. Mm-hmm. Now we've learned about Singer and Alito. There could be other yeah. stuff, even involving liberal justices. I have no idea. If there were one, and I'm making this up, so please don't think that this is anything other than my fevered imagination. <laughs> but if it were Sotomayor going on trips with George Soros and not disclosing it, and Soros had stuff before, like, I would have the exact same response to this, which is, 
disclose it and apologize. Do you think that ProPublica is doing that kind of journalism, studying the background of Sotomayor right now? I mean, I, I think that's where conservatives also say ProPublica is is being spun as this like nonpartisan group, but they have donors as well. And if we are taking for granted the idea that if you accept money from someone, you are therefore doing their bidding or biased. I mean, who are the people giving money to? I, I do actually think that they would, and I think they okay. would do. I think they would do it exactly to make it so you couldn't make that comment. And it might just be that Elena Absolutely. Kagan or whoever, I Sotomayor doesn't want to go King Salmon fishing in Alaska. <laughs> well, what do you make of, of this uh, argument that Alito made that, that you know, he, he used an empty seat in this private jet and it would have gone empty if he hadn't used it. And, 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 and he actually saved the government money since he had flown commercial, then U.S. Marshals would have had needed to accompany him. I mean, listen, disclose it, right? Disclose it. What's wrong with putting it on the, on the documents where you're supposed to say these are sort of the in-kind gifts uh, you would have, you know, you, you, you've taken. And listen, that was an expensive seat. I mean, the idea that it was an empty, I don't even know what he's talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that they're doubling down. We'll see if there are any more changes, right? There's certainly press, uh, pressure on Roberts to maybe make some rules uh, around uh, ethics. But listen, uh, you know, I guess when Thomas came out, he was a little bit more like going forward. I'll do better. So far, it doesn't look like Alito is saying that. And then Durbin, uh, who's um, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he reacted to this story today. Uh, Take a look. Let me state the obvious. There's something rotten going on in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. When we return from the July recess, we will have a markup of the Supreme Court ethics bill in the Senate Judiciary Committee. I hope before that time, Chief Justice Roberts will take a lead and show some leadership. I mean, it's true that he or any one of the 500 other Supreme Court justices, however many there were, or chief justices could impose a rule of... At least disclosure. No one's saying don't do it. They're just saying disclose it. Right, which is why you see senators such as Dick Durbin, such as Sheldon Whitehouse, be much more aggressive about the need for the, at least the legislative branch to exercise some oversight on the judicial branch because they feel, as Senator Durbin said, that they are not doing enough to police themselves. But the court says you can't do that separation of powers. Right, but that is not certainly not stopping uh, the senators here. What's really interesting, if legislation does advance, and now this is something I don't expect to actually pass, you know, clear the Senate, much less pass the House, but it might prompt another way, another um, instance for the White House to weigh in. Because it's actually interesting, the Biden White House has not wanted to touch this issue at all. Yeah. They won't comment on Clarence Thomas and whether the president himself feels at all icky about that situation. Certainly they have not commented on this latest ProPublica report today. I think they feel sort of where Chief, jo- Chief Justice Roberts feels that they, you know, it's their branch of government. They should police themselves. And, and Durbin and White House getting involved in this doesn't make it look any less partisan. No. And, right. you know, we had a discussion on this show a couple of days ago about how it was good that President Biden was not, for instance, trying to fundraise off of President Trump, right? yeah. former President Trump being indicted. It is good to not politicize things that should not be politicized. So assuming that President Biden sort of stays out of this, he's probably doing himself a Well, favor. ethics reform would also hold liberal justices accountable, too. So mm-hmm. Democrats are actually being open to that conversation. Right. It's just, you know, you have Mike Lee and Tom Cotton saying this is just a bunch of left-wing hacks attacking the court because they hate Clarence Thomas. And, and there is a way to approach this. I don't see anybody in the Senate doing it the way that I think 
You two could. <laughs> Get on it right now. You two will solve everything. <laughs> Thanks to all. 12 years behind bars. That's the sentence for a January 6th rioter who attacked a police officer at the Capitol with a stun gun. The victim of that attack, Officer Michael Fanone, will join us live. And we're back with the law and justice lead and a court date just in for Hunter Biden, the president's son. He will appear July 26th before Judge Mary Ellen Norica, a Trump-appointed judge. The Justice Department announced yesterday that Hunter Biden will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors, and he struck a deal to resolve a felony gun charge. Let's bring in Neil Kachal, who served as acting solicitor general during the Obama administration and is the host of a brand new podcast called Courtside, which launches today. Neil, congratulations on the on the new podcast. Let me let me ask you, this is going to be the the initial appearance and plea hearing for Hunter Biden. What usually happens during hearings like these? So thank you, Jake. It's a privilege to be on with you. Um, So what's going to happen is the judge has to approve the plea deal. Now, this is a plea deal that wasn't, you know, struck by Merrick Garland or Joe Biden or anything like that. It was struck by a prosecutor named David Weiss, who was the Trump U.S. attorney, the chief prosecutor in Delaware. And Garland and Biden kept him on because he had this investigation after uh, Biden won the election. So this is done by a Trump appointee. Uh, Weiss had full discretion over this case. He confirmed that in a letter to Jim Jordan to Congress last month. Um, And so I think the judge is going to examine and say, look, here's what happened. Is this an appropriate sentence given the gravity of the crimes that are now admitted to? Yeah, it's interesting because um, it's a Trump-appointed prosecutor, uh, U.S. Attorney Weiss, and now a Trump-appointed judge is going to hear it, and yet we continue to hear complaints from Republicans on the Hill that this is somehow an example of two-tiered justice system where Democrats constantly benefit. Um, I don't know how common this kind of char- these kind of charges are, is it true that it would be a much harsher penalty in, in an average case? That's exceptionally right, uh, Jake. So the person who, if anyone has anything to complain about, it's a guy named Hunter Biden. Because if you're a first-time tax offender, first-time gun offender, it doesn't usually result in much. I think what happened here is that you are talking about an investigation of the president's son. And so stakes were raised. Um, and... Republicans were always going to scream that this sent that the plea deal was or any arrangement was going to be unfair. I mean, if the prosecution sought life imprisonment for these crimes, I suspect we'd be hearing griping about how why wasn't the death penalty sought and the like. You have a new podcast coming out, as I mentioned, your first episode focuses on a major freedom of speech case. What is that? Yeah, so that's New York Times versus Sullivan. And the whole idea of the podcast is to basically say, look, I mean, for all sorts of important reasons, you and others are covering the day-to-day decisions by the Supreme Court, ethics controversies and the like. That's all great. But what we're losing sight of is that this Supreme Court is playing an outsized role in our lives. It's not just about abortion or guns. It's about employment. It's about prayer. It's about 
uh, voting and so many other things. And so the idea of the podcast is to take one Supreme Court case, talk about it with a non-lawyer who can just break it down for ordinary people. So episode two next week will be with John Legend on voting rights. I'll have John Mulaney, the comedian, talking about prosecuting presidents and Regina Spector, the musician, talking about refugees and the like. The idea is to translate the court for ordinary Americans. All right. Sounds great. Neil Conchal, good to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you, Jake. A January 6th rioter who used a stun gun to attack a D.C. police officer, Michael Fanone, has been sentenced to 12 years in prison. 40-year-old Daniel Rodriguez pleaded guilty to four criminal counts in February. Today, he delivered a rambling 30-minute speech before being handed his sentence. He shouted, Trump won as he left the courtroom. That, of course, is the same lie that inspired so many to attack the Capitol that day. And Officer Michael Fanone uh, joins us now. Uh, so, Michael, you were attacked in the neck with uh, the stun gun by this man. You also suffered a mild heart attack and concussion that day. So what is your reaction to today's sentence? I think the uh, 12 and a half years was appropriate. Um, and I'm, I'm satisfied with, uh, with that sentence. Do you, you, think it goes, you think it goes far enough that's exactly appropriate? Uh, with regards to the crimes that Mr. Rodriguez committed, yes. Uh, I'm satisfied with that sentence. You were in the courtroom today. What did you make of his outburst? I mean, Trump won. That's the same lie that was behind the attack on the Capitol to begin with. Uh, I mean, I think what, I, what I've been seeing uh, is that that is the rule rather than the exception, that there is no remorse um, on the part of the individuals that committed acts of violence on January 6th, specifically uh, those individuals that assaulted police officers, uh, that destroyed property. Um, I've seen time and time again the pleas for uh, leniency, and then once the san- sentences is handed down, as it was today, uh, and there was no further acts that could be taken uh, by the court against Mr. Rodriguez, uh, he decided to have a, an outburst uh, in which he declared that Trump was the winner of the uh, 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Um, how worried are you that uh, in 2024 somebody will be elected who will pardon uh, Daniel Rodriguez? Uh, Donald Trump is talking about pardons. Other candidates have, other Republican candidates have, have talked about their open-mindedness to it. Well, first of all, I think the language in and of itself, regardless of why uh, these candidates choose to use it, I think in the case of Ron DeSantis, he's just looking to hone in on some of Donald Trump's uh, voting base. Uh, Donald Trump, I think it's more complicated. I think there's uh, a part of him that uh, that wants to pardon these individuals to kind of thumb his nose in the face at, um, you know, <laughs> Americans that opposed him. Uh, and I also think that he's concerned about uh, individuals cooperating uh, against him. And so, you know, dangling this notion of a pardon uh, would, you know, at least in his mind, I think, prevent them from doing so. Right. But as a victim, as a survivor of a violence caused by these people, how do you personally feel about the idea that they could be pardoned theoretically? I mean, um, it's outrageous. I don't think that there's a way to. Uh, quantify that on this show that's appropriate for television. I keep telling you, we're cable. You can curse. (laughs) Officer Michael Fanone, thank you so much. New details about the DNA match that tied a suspect to the Idaho College student murder. Stay with us. 
Sticking with our law and justice lead, court documents reveal that DNA found at the crime scene of the four murdered University of Idaho students is a statistical match for the suspect. Brian Koberger, you may recall, is being charged with stabbing Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan at an off-campus home last fall. CNN's Gene Casares has been following this horrible story since the beginning. Gene, what, what does that mean, a statistical match? Well, this document that was just filed, it's a motion filed by the prosecution. It states as fact that after Brian Koberger was arrested, they got his DNA. They did an STR test for DNA from the unknown DNA on that knife sheet that was found at the crime scene that we now hear was partially under the body of Maddie Mogan. And it was a statistical match, according to this motion. Now, here's what it says. Let's look at this. It says, pursuant to a search warrant, law enforcement then collected DNA from defendant via a buccal swab. A traditional STR DNA comparison was done between the STR profile found on the K-bar knife sheath and defendant's DNA. The comparison showed a statistical match. Specifically, the STR profile is at least 5.37 octillion times more likely to be seen if the defendant is the source. And this motion came about, Jake, because the defense had asked for everything on DNA analysis, which is their right. They want to know the procedure. They want to know the statistics. And the prosecution is saying you can have some of it, but you can't have anything in regard to the genetic genealogy that was done, which is another issue. The FBI uh, helped local authorities to get to this point, right? With the genetic genealogy. They took it over. And what they found, let's look at the document here. It says, quote, the FBI went to work building family trees of the genetic relatives to the suspect. DNA left at the crime scene in attempt to identify the contributor of the unknown DNA. Tools and methods used by members of the public who wish to learn more about their ancestors. That contained the name, birth date, and death rate of hundreds of relatives. And they're talking about Koberger, as well as their familial connections between each other and the suspect, Brian C. Koberger. The FBI then sent local law enforcement a tip to investigate defendant. So according to this document, they got that name, Brian Koberger, from the genetic genealogy and went from there. Hmm. Gene Casares, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The U.S. Postal Service is getting into some good trouble tonight on Capitol Hill. I'll explain what that means next. But first, here's CNN's Alex Marquardt, who's in for Wolf Blitzer. Alex, what's next uh, in the situation room? Well, Jake, on this search and rescue for the Titan submersible and this desire to go down and see the Titanic, we have a guest named Richard Garriott. He is the president of the Explorers Club, which two people on board this submersible are also members of Hamish Harding and Paul-Henri Nargiolet. He knows them both. He's family friends with Harding. He also knows the oceans. He's bound down to the Mariana Trench. Incidentally, he's also been up to the International Space Station. So we'll have much more on this search and rescue right at the top of the hour in the Situation Room. Just moments ago, congressional leaders from both sides of the aisle gathered at the Capitol to unveil a stamp honoring the late congressman and civil rights activist John Lewis, Democrat of Georgia. The stamp design released by the U.S. Postal Service features a 2013 Time magazine photo of Lewis. The stamp sheet also includes a 1963 photo of Lewis as a young man, right when he began being a civil rights icon. 
Lewis, of course, was elected to the House of Representatives in 1986, where he served for more than 30 years until his death in 2020. Before that, he was a prominent civil rights leader who suffered a skull fracture when he was beaten by police during the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. Lewis was known for advocating people to get into good trouble to make positive change in society. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.